Welcome to Making Movies is Hard, a podcast about the everyday struggle of being an independent filmmaker. I'm Timothy Plain. And I'm Mark Purcell. Each week we discuss filmmaking topics and give you our point of view on them, not as experts, but as two filmmakers trying to figure it out for ourselves. I don't know about you, Ulrich, but it seems like every filmmaker I know started making stop motion animations when they first got their camera, me included. Right. Well, a lot. Not me included, but um, but that's just because I've uh, I I had knew some people who were doing it when I was really young, and I was like, wow, I can't. That's too much. Too much for me. <laughs> <laughs> I had like all these like GI posable GI Joe figures, and I think I had like a a rubber Pink Panther. Yeah, and that that was like the first thing I did was I didn't really have frame accurate video camera. I probably rolled like five or six frames when you press start and stop really quick but yeah it was just me with a bunch of toys and doing stop motion for probably the first few months of getting my camera and i feel like i'm wow. always hearing stories of filmmakers on other podcasts saying that they started with stop motion yeah totally yeah so today we are going to talk about stop motion and we got john peters with us he's the founder and ceo of athena studios which is a stop motion animation studio in berkeley california Hey, John, welcome to the podcast. It's great to be here, guys. Thanks for having me. <laughs> so what do you think it is that filmmakers are so fascinated with stop motion? Do you feel that same thing that you'd hear a lot of filmmakers starting out with stop motion when they get their first cameras? A couple of things. One, I think one of the fascinations is it's sort of toys brought to life. Two, it's so accessible, right? Especially nowadays. I mean, you can do it with your iPhone or or anything. You don't need a lot of equipment. You don't need to hire actors. You don't need a lot of lights. You don't, you know, it's pretty easy and pretty uh, accessible for people to get into. Funny. Yeah, it is like that. The one form of filmmaking where you don't need a bunch of people. Right, right. You don't need a sound guy. You don't need drips. You don't need, you know, it's like, I got a couple Legos and I got my iPhone. We're good to go. <laughs> yeah. Oh man, I wish I had an iPhone when I was growing up. It would have made my movies way better than that. What did I have? Like, um, it, it was just that eight millimeter video. I forgot high eight. Oh yeah, video okay. camera. Oh my god, those things are crappy. I stole my dad's Bolex. I have a I had a oh, Bolex nice. camera, and I grabbed that, and then um, I had built a claymation, of course, dinosaur when I was in junior high, and that was my first sort of foray into it, and it was terrible. It was really bad, but I still have my dinosaur, believe it or not. That's cool. Yeah. Well, why don't you give everyone a one minute bio so they kind of know who you are, where'd you come from, and I guess you don't have to go through your whole history, but just, yeah, give us a, a, a brush of who you are and how you got to where you where you are now. Yeah. So I have to say that I started in filmmaking when I was five years old, actually. And um, I got an Easy Show projector. I don't know if you heard of those. And no. uh, I, I darkened the garage and I charged kids a nickel and came in and I would read the, you know, it was like a slideshow kind of a thing. Um, some of your older listeners might remember these things. Um, and, and that was sort of my introduction because I just, I loved it. I loved the whole theater experience um, and was doing that through high school, getting the um, little eight millimeter horror films and recutting them and then showing them to friends. And all of this was silent movies, of course. And was this um, in the Bay Area? Yeah. Yeah. Arinda. Yeah. So I went okay. to high school in Arinda and um you know, I really enjoyed it. And I, I mentioned that, you know, I had my dinosaur and, and tried to do some stop motion there. Um, went to college, got a degree in industrial design, which is why I'm so in love with the practical side as opposed to the CG side of things, I guess, although most of that's CG now. Um, 
and then uh, went into advertising actually um, for a number of years at a small boutique agency and was doing some computer-based animation um, uh, and some things like that and then ended up uh, in education and doing a lot of video production and uh, with that some visual effects and uh, ended up getting on the board of directors for the Visual Effects Society and that kind of brought me to starting Athena Studios and doing some stop-motion work. So that's that's sort of how it all came about. Awesome. So it's interesting that your career path wasn't like exclusively stop-motion, but you're, that's kind of where your passion lies from being a kid. So why did it take you so long to like come back to stop-motion in your adult years? Life's a funny thing, right? <laughs> we, we, we all go on these different paths, and then sometimes you end up back where you started, and that's kind of what happened. And, you know, it was funny because when I joined the Visual Effects Society and uh, was elected to the board, um, it was during, I don't know if you remember, Life of Pi Day. And it's when, yeah. um, you know, Rhythm and Hughes had won the Academy Award for Visual Effects, and that same week or within a week after uh, declared bankruptcy. And this was happening all over the place. And you may have seen it on Facebook, all the people who had the green icons instead of their, uh, pro for their profile, profile pics. Um, and it was because there was a tremendous um, sea change happening. And everybody kept saying, somebody should do something, somebody should do something. And I realized, wait, I've, I've got a production studio. I know a lot of people in the industry, and maybe I can do something. And so I started putting together a team. Uh, I immediately wanted to do stop motion because of my background in practical. And so that's really where I was at. And I knew there were a lot of tremendous stop motion people in the Bay Area. So I immediately started trying to put together a crew to do that and uh, tried to make a, a Christmas film and uh, got pretty far with it too. But, uh, but it was a feature film. So yeah, why are there so many stop motion people in, in the Bay Area? Because I know Nightmare Before Christmas and James and the Giant Peach were both shot here. Mm, yeah. Or did people come here to shoot those movies, or did those movies shoot here because we had the the talent in the Bay Area? It, it's the latter. Yeah, the, the talent was here. So Colossal Pictures, um, if you remember all those great Pillsbury Doughboy ads. Um, oh yeah. Those were originally stop motion, and Colossal Pictures was doing those among other things. Um, and that's where Henry Selleck was actually. I think Henry Selleck headed up. I think he shot 52 of those along with uh, his crew there. And so, you know, when Henry left, that's sort of where Nightmare Before Christmas came from. And Skellington Productions, which started here. And that was James the Giant Peach and, and uh, Nightmare Before Christmas. And so, yeah, there was a lot of talent. Plus, you had folks like John Berg and Phil Tippett from uh, ILM who had been oh, shooting right. for Empire Strikes Back and Return of the mm -hmm. Jedi, and they had been doing the go-motion stuff and Dragon Slayer and a lot of other things. So you had a tremendous amount of talent in the industry here. Yeah. And did you work with any of those guys that you just named before starting the, the stop-motion in Athena? Um, no, not really. I mean, no. I, I knew of them. Um, we had done a test. One of the thing, ways we got into stop-motion was... Uh, I had mentioned we were doing this educational work and we decided to take one of the stories from one of these short educational pieces and make it into a stop motion um, piece. And it took us, uh, honestly, it took us almost a year to do it because 
I just didn't know. And it had been a long time since I had done molding and casting and, and all of that. And so I had made the puppets um, myself. Uh, and that's where we met John Berg. He came in and he was nice enough to sort of mentor us along the way. Um, really wonderful guy. And, um, it, you know, I, I loved his advice because we had seriously spent a year just trying to figure out the puppets and how they were going to work and, um, and how to get everything right and how to do the molding and casting. And he just said, he said, my best advice I can give you is just do it. Just start, sh shoot your first frame, just <laughs> whatever, just get going. And, you know, <laughs> that's what we said, tell filmmakers too. You just gotta, just gotta get out there and just do it. Experience it. is everything in this business, isn't it? Absolutely, because you, you can overthink it, and that's what we were doing. We were overthinking it, and uh, he said, just keep, start shooting, and, and you're going to figure it out, and, and that's kind of what happened. And so after we shot that, then uh, you know, the real love of stop motion came back, and it was like, oh my gosh, we've, we've got to do more of this. So like, Phil Tippett was really well known for stop motion. Does Tippett Studios do any stop motion anymore, or like, is Athena kind of the only place right now that's still doing it? Athena's the only studio up in Northern California that's that's actively doing it. Phil is doing a stop motion piece called Mad God. Oh, and, right. That's um, his like passion project he's been working yeah. on forever. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it started at she's at this point now probably twenty five years ago. I oh think my gosh. he had done it. But but when he switched over to CG, the whole thing got put on a shelf, right? And and he dusted it off uh, three or four years ago. Um, and brought it back out and started. He's got a volunteer crew that works on it. And he's put out two of these now. I think they're 20 or 30 minutes each. Um, and they're funded through Kickstarter. And, uh, and they're doing really well. It's a, it's a nightmarish vision. I've got to be honest. It's, it's, it's a little, <laughs> it can be difficult to watch, but it is, but it's also very beautiful. I mean, it's, it's yeah. tremendous. I mean, there's, there's few people as good at stop motion as Phil Tippett. Yeah. And I, we had Don Bees on the show. Actually, mm. his show went live this week. And we were talking about Starship Troopers. And that was like, that was Tippett Studios' first movie with CG characters, right? Is that kind yeah, of I the think story? so. Well, yeah. So that whole transition came about uh, with Jurassic Park. And, and I think that was the writing on the wall for Phil, because originally Jurassic Park was all stop motion dinosaurs. And, um, and it was Stan Winston and Phil Tippett, and he was using a form of uh, Go Motion, uh, which was used for Dragon Slayer and some other things. And it, it's fantastic. It's just what it does is it takes, because um, in stop motion, it's very crisp, right? Because you're shooting it, it's a static picture, and Go Motion introduces a little bit of motion blur to it. Um, and so ILM had been brought on. Uh, so Tippett was going to be doing the stop motion, but ILM had been brought on and they were just going to digitally add the motion blur. That was their whole job. Mm -hmm. But then Steve Spaz Williams and some other folks at ILM had been playing with the computer and they said, you know what, this would be great uh, to do in CG, even though they had already gone down the path and made the decision to do stop motion. Um, but they continued to work late at night behind closed doors and, and put together a test, which was basically a T-Rex uh, and you can find it online. Actually, it was a T-Rex walking. It was just the, just the bones. Um, but some folks, Kathleen Kennedy and some other folks, um, who were involved in the project came through and they saw that and they were blown away. And, uh, he had it sort of running because he wasn't supposed to show anybody, but he had it running and they saw mm -hmm. it. 
and they were blown away and they said, hey, can you put skin on that? And once they saw it, they decided that they um, would move away from stop motion. They didn't cancel everything they were doing in stop motion and move to CG. And I think that's, you know, when Tippett said, okay, we're, the stop motion is not going to continue. But yeah, around this time then, you had all these stop motion artists that had worked with Phil Tippett, that had worked on probably like some of the original Star Wars, that probably were working in like the ILM model shops and stuff like that. As everyone's kind of deciding that stop motion is long, no longer a thing, and you have all these people that worked on like the original Star Wars and that worked on, that were pr- probably going to work on Jurassic Park. Like now all of a sudden are these people just like floating out in the world and they just have, they don't know what to do with themselves? You're absolutely right. So it was interesting because Colossal, Henry Selleck was leaving Colossal at that time to work on Nightmare Before Christmas. Oh, this is um, right around the Jurassic Park thing, too. Right around the Jurassic wow. Park thing. What yeah, a, like really... upending of the whole like stop motion community, huh? Yeah, yeah. So it was really interesting. So Pete Kozicic, who was the director of photography and had been working with Phil Tippett and sort of brought motion control over to Tippett Studios, um, and was he had been asked by Phil to work on Jurassic Park, but at the same time Henry was splitting off and going to be starting this Nightmare Before Christmas thing. And so um, Pete had said, hey, Phil, that's great, but these are effect shots, and Henry's starting a movie, so I think I'll go over there. Um, so, yeah, that's kind of when the whole thing started separating. And then Phil, they did keep Phil on Jurassic Park because he knows dinosaurs so incredibly well. I mean, he's been doing them since he was a kid and he, he really understands it. And so you'll see that he was, if you look at the credits, he's the dinosaur supervisor. And there's a constant <laughs> running joke about it that, hey, you had one job, Phil, to supervise the dinosaurs and you let them all out. Look at that. <laughs> But yeah, so then that whole thing went CG, and I think that's when Phil, and and I don't know the exact uh, timeline of it, but I think that's when Phil saw the writing on the wall and switched over to go to uh, to a CG studio. The fact that Phil was involved with Jurassic Park, and you know, like he was the dinosaur expert, and he did all that stop motion work before. It's like that's what makes that movie great because they put the VFX on stop on top of the stop stop motion, from my understanding, and that's what made it just seems so yeah and, and the dinosaur performances were based off of his yeah exactly they look, they're <laughs> yep. so good. yeah and then you yep. watch the later ones and they're like mm, that was good <laughs> yeah well and in fact they had it because of the way the go motion worked that the um dinosaurs actually put data into the computer and phil's got those displayed in his studio still um so as is he if he would move the dinosaurs right they'd be able to get the motion from those and feed it into the computer and use that to drive the movement of the dinosaurs. So yeah, why don't they do that for the the more recent ones? That seems like obvious. Like you know, use the same technique that made the other one look so great. You know. Yeah, it's my guess is it's a money thing, honestly. Yeah, it's always a money thing. Yeah. Stupid. When they have so uh, much money, come on. Fir- <laughs> <laughs> so what was the first movie that ever used stop motion animation? It was actually you know I don't recall the name of it, but it was done in the. Um, late 1800s and then in 1920 something Georges Méliès um, used it for a title sequence in something that he did um, and you know I, I would encourage any filmmaker out there if they don't know who uh, Georges Méliès is look him up and the movie Hugo was based somewhat on his life um, but he was sort of the father of special effects as well 
um, quite by accident because he'd left his camera running and some things had moved and, and all of a sudden people were appearing and disappearing and he realized that he could do those kinds of things, these in-camera effects. Um, so yeah, so it actually started back, you know, early 1900s is when it kind of took off and wow, then they started things. That old. Yeah. Yeah, like, yeah. In my film memory, King Kong is like the first stop motion animated character. Yeah. Is that true? And, uh, well, no. Willis O'Brien had done The Lost World before that, and there had been other claymation characters and some oh, okay. other things before that. But but certainly, it Willis O'Brien um, brought it to a whole new level um, in terms of Kong, uh, and then you know later uh, Harryhausen with Mighty Joe Young and and some of those. And and Harryhausen, uh, although you know I was a huge fan of King Kong growing up, that certainly fed my love for stop motion. But but Harryhausen really cemented it as far as I'm concerned. I mean, it's you know he was pretty amazing. That was like what Sinbad. Seven Voids of Sinbad yeah. was one of those. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he did some some pretty amazing characters like Medusa and Mighty Joe yeah. Young and the Cyclops and Talos. And it's so uh, funny. Like, I don't think I ever saw those movies, but I knew those shots. Uh, and uh, one of the first things I did when I had a camera was I tried to do a sort of like a rear projection thing. I think I was going to shoot myself. I was going to project myself on the TV and then set up like a little stop motion stage in front of it. And then like frame the TV VCR frame by frame while doing stop motion in the foreground. And then as I was setting it up, I realized you can't really shoot off a TV because you can see the pixels and it was too hard to get the frame by frame synced up. But I was going to try a sort of an effect like that. Yeah. Yeah. King Kong did. I feel like most movie monsters ended up being like stop motion animation after King Kong. I guess that's not totally true because there's probably a bunch of bad fifties movies where it's just in suits in, in rubber costumes. Yeah. Oh, I loved all those like movies. Godzilla yeah. and stuff, but watched a lot of those yeah. things. Yeah. Yeah. So it uh right. So for your bigger creatures and dinosaurs and those kinds of things, you know, they were either using uh, you know, and you certainly saw this in one million BC and some of those with the right. you know, the giant lizards, right? They'd put a lizard in and try to film that. Um but yeah, there were a lot that uh went to stop motion and uh, you know, then when Phil came up with this idea of go motion and they used that at first for the um, walkers and the tauntauns in Empire Strikes Back. Mm-hmm. And then later was used quite well in Dragon Slayer. Um, you know, that brought a whole nother level to it. But unfortunately, those things were happening right as CG was kind of taking off. So it's hard to know where stop motion would have gone. Yeah. I've seen some really amazing things being done with stop motion that are just sort of, um, you know, they're really quick to do. And honestly, I think that's that, that's where stop motion really shines for me. And I think that's one of the, you know, if I were to look at, okay, well, what are, what are the problems with stop motion is that, um, and, and not, to knock, not to knock Leica because they do an amazing job with their films, but at some point it almost becomes too clean. Um, and I've heard Henry Selleck say this even, where he's just said, yeah, it really needs to get back to the heart of it. Um, where you're not trying to make it look so clean that it looks like CG. Um, Paranorman is a stop motion feature from Leica, and it's it's a fun movie. Um, but when I've seen it with people, most think that it's well, CG. Yeah, I thought that um, was a CG and, movie. I didn't know it was stop motion. <laughs> yeah, I haven't right. seen it, but you know. So when you get to that point, really, are you using stop motion? Is are you are you honoring the medium? Right, I guess is what I'm getting at. Um, and, and Henry has said in the past, and I, I don't want to 
quote him, but but he has said um, that you know if he does more stop motion and he is working on something now, but he wants it with a smaller crew and he wants to honor stop motion and and make it a little rougher so that it looks like stop motion. Right. Well, it's got a very unique look to it that like it, it it's it's like that textural thing that you only get from something that actually exists in reality. You know. Um, and I think it's, it's kind of a special, you know, magical kind of look, you know? Um, so yeah, it's good to hear that people aren't trying to like get rid of that stuff, you know, like, especially with the Gumby, you know, like you could see the finger marks on the clay, you know, and you're like, wow, that's just, this is wonderful. You know, you can feel it in the hand of the the filmmaker. Well, and it's interesting because CG is trying to replicate some of that. If you go back and watch the Lego movie, when you look at the Legos, they have little fingerprints on them. And so they're really trying to make it look like it was really stop motion and hand done. Um, But, but yeah, it's, you know, it really is its own art form and it has its own, uh, even though Coraline was done in 3d, I think that just filming in stop motion gives things a much more dimensional appearance than what you'd typically get with CG. Because Coraline was also uh, stop motion um, completely? Yes, Coraline was wow. stop motion as well. That was, yeah. that was a beautiful movie. I did see that in the theater. I thought that was really, really well done. Um, but you it put that beautiful. in the same category as Paranorman as far as, like, you know, being too clean looking? Or do you think that's more, like, kind of more authentic? No, I feel that yeah. was pretty authentic. That, that's a beautiful film. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm going to kind of go off book here. I have a question for you. So I don't, sure. what kind of stop-motion projects do you work on um, at your studio? Well, mostly commercial projects, but we did, uh, as I mentioned, we had filmed the educational piece, which was really our first one. Um, then we did one for um, Cheetos. We did one for a tennis shoe company. Uh, we just, uh, end of last year, filmed a um, one for Dignity Health, which was a snowman um, piece. Uh, so those are the kinds of things we did. And, and then I mentioned earlier that we were working on a feature film, and we had gotten pretty far with that. We had gotten it scripted. We had uh, signed a pretty well-known director. I, I don't want to. I can't really mention her name, but I'll just say that she's in a league of her own. And uh, we had a great producer on it, and uh, it unfortunately didn't take off due to creative differences. Oh, but, was it all uh, funded and everything but, too? Or no, we were just going out for funding oh, right at that time. Okay. So we had a script. We had. Uh, Teaser and the teaser is, is online. If you look up Athena Studios, I'm sure you'll find it. Um, and it's uh, yeah, and it was great. It was uh, it was re- really great. We had a tremendous crew working on. How it. do you know when a, a project like that is dead? That you're there's just no hope it'll ever recover, and you just walk away from it. I think when the author kills the option agreement, uh, <laughs> which is what happened. To us. Yeah, pretty clear, <laughs> right? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah. She just a uh, wonderful uh, woman, but she just said she decided she couldn't let go of her characters and, and let anybody else Oof. take control. It was based on a best-selling children's uh, oh, Christmas man. book. Um, and wonderful characters, but, you know, it's a 32-page picture book. And, you know, when you want to stretch that into a 90-minute movie, you've got to add things. Um, and that was very difficult. Um, so, so yeah, ultimately it, it, um, she decided to cancel it. Wow. That's tough. What about mermaids on Mars? The Mm. the 25 minute film, did you ever have plans to make that into a feature and what's the story behind that? You know, the, we had a producer who who brought that project to us, a very creative woman, uh, Nancy Coutier, and, um, she's a writer and a musician, um, and extremely creative. And she had plans for it to be a feature film 
um, and she had some funding, um, but not enough for a feature. So um, she had come to us, and we decided let's go ahead and we'll we'll cut it down, and we'll make it in a 25-minute piece and bookend it with live action. Um, but we did have to make, and this is often the case because stop motion can be very expensive. It's a very labor intensive process, obviously. And so we had to make some, um, cuts or budget. We had to have budgetary constraints, uh, along the way. So I had mentioned, uh, George Melies, uh, earlier. And so that's one of the things that we did is we said, look, maybe we can combine 2d practical with 3d and do something that's a little more simple. Um, but still beautiful. And so we use George Melies' style. If you go back and look at some of his early films, they were, they were live actors done with flats, lots of flats. And so that's what we decided to have drive the movies, that sort of look of the flats combined with 3D objects. And so, so that came in budget and it did really well. We won the best animated film at the Carmel um, Film Festival, which is where it launched. And and it won numerous awards along the way. Um, Nancy is still determined to get it made into a full-length feature, and so I think that's really what she's working on. Um, but the uh, so the short uh, is out there. She's got control of that, um, and it's out there. And, and I think she's shopping at trying to get a, a full-length. Okay, made. so she brought that that's project awesome. to you guys. She did. Yeah, yeah. That's not one that we had done originally. Although we did rewrite the script to uh, we worked with her writer. Uh, and then I worked on it as well to rewrite it and shorten it, cut it down. There were a lot of messages in the original 90-page script that were there, and we had to simplify that and get it down to sort of one message. And then she funded it herself then? Yep. yep. Okay. And then it, when you say it's out there, do you, is it out for people to see, or is she just like shopping it around to like investors and stuff? She's shopping okay. it around, yeah, to investors. I think there's a trailer that's out there that's available online for it, um, but the film itself has never been released to the public. Okay, cool. Um, I have another question about like, so let, let's say a company comes to you and they're like, okay, we want to do this stop motion commercial or this stop motion um, component to a commercial. Do you ever have to battle with the idea of it going CG or them approaching it a different way? Or is it always like, no, we came to you for stop motion, like this is stop motion all the way? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. You have to battle that. Um, you know, I, I think the, the thing that happens is people don't often think stop motion. So when they, when they first think animation, the first thing that comes to mind is, oh, computer, right? That's because that's just right, sort of the right, go-to. Right. Um, so very few people actually think about, oh, okay, well, what type of animation? They never, you know, they already have the answer to the question normally. Um, and so they don't open up the question and say, okay, well, what might we be able to do? You know, does it make sense to go stop motion? Should we go cell-based 2D animation, uh, flash-based animation, CG, straight CG, 3D? Um, so yeah, you do have to battle that and you have to say, um, and, and it's not so much of a battle, it's, it's an understanding of what is stop motion good at? Where does CG shine? Uh, where might you combine the two? Um, there's not much done in stop motion now where CG of some form isn't a part. Um, even the Mermaids on Mars piece, even though we shot a lot of it on flats, we also shot a lot of it on green screen and then we'd add effects in later. Um, and we did that with the, um, the Christmas piece that we did as well. We shot some things and then we'd add certain effects, smoke, uh, and other things, cause you can't obviously shoot smoke 
very easily in stop motion. So you add that after the fact in post. Nice. Um, and you, your studio does visual effects too, right? Uh, it's minor. Mostly it's compositing types okay. of things. Because, yeah. I mean, I was just going to say, like, it, it would be pretty cool, like, you know, if someone came to you to do stop motion and then, you know, you're like, well, and they're like, if they start to mention they want to go CG, then it's like, well, we can do that too, you know? So, I mean, does that sometimes happen where you end up doing the CG in-house, or if if they decide to go CG, do they just go somewhere else for that? Yeah, if it was full CG 3D, um, we're not geared up for that. We don't have that kind of workflow in place, so we would send them to another studio for, for full CG. Um, if they want stop motion and they want some um, CG effects in it, uh, yeah, we'll do oh, that. Okay, cool. Awesome. What makes stop motion filmmaking different from like live-action filmmaking? And my first question that kind of pertains to this is, um, just kind of a technical thing about shooting ones and twos. The, uh, the first time I heard that was when I was working with you guys on that Cheetahs project, and I never mm -hmm. really thought about any other version of stop motion other than frame by frame. But you can also shoot one, was it one still for every two frames, or how does that work? Yeah, that, no, that's exactly it. Yeah, so there's ones, twos, threes, and I've heard even fours. Um, where you can shoot it where you don't have a lot of motion and so you can just basically hold a frame for a couple of shots and and that's it so you know films are shot at 24 frames per second typically and and this is uh, you know the real labor intensive part of this is that you know if you're shooting on ones which is you know if you're at 24 frames per second it means that a one you're shooting 24 frames in stop motion to get that one second of film and um, that means that you've got to move the puppet and sometimes that means moving the hair maybe moving the clothes ever so slightly so you can imagine if you go back to corpse bride and think about her her flowing gown um, you know you'd have to put the wind effect in that so you're moving the gown um, and then you might move a finger you might move an eye a slight you know start an eye blink um, and eye blinks usually are, you know three or four frames um, and, and then you take a picture and then you start. Okay. We have to talk about this for a second. <laughs> how does an artist keep that in their head and know how to move things on a frame by frame basis? So stop motion artists are, are incredible people and, and they're different. It's sort of like a grandmaster chess player who can think, you know, many moves ahead or, or remembers all the games that have ever been played. Right. It's a different mindset. So um, stop motion animators that I know, uh, if you're in a restaurant and a waiter trips and, and drops a plate and it breaks on the ground, they'll go, okay, that was 72 frames. <laughs> I mean, they just... <laughs> like Rain Man. <laughs> yeah, it's like Rain Man. They just, they know, they're, they're incredibly uh, talented at doing that and they know what the frames are going to be like. Um, but do they do, keep notes? Do they have like, because I, yes. I feel like I've seen like a grid or something that had... I don't know what. I yeah. don't, how, do how does it, how do they keep notes? You you keep notes, so they they'll keep their own notes, and so sometimes they'll film themselves doing something, and then they'll show that on the screen, so they know what the action is and how to do it. But as you're boarding, all of every stop motion I've worked on, and, and the ones I've seen, they're fully boarded out, and then you put in your frame count, so you know exactly how many frames you're going to be shooting. So you'll know that okay, this person's going to walk from this part of the room. Uh, and they're going to move cam to camera right, and it's going to be 89 frames. And you'll count it out that way, and then you'll give handles. So it might be six frames on either side or 12 frames on either side. So you might have a quarter to a half second. And surprisingly, I used to think, well, why even bother? Um, it's, it's so few frames, right? If you're talking a quarter of a second. 
it makes a huge difference actually because in your cut especially if you're cutting between action um that can make a really huge difference just having those extra frames let's take that example of somebody walking across the room and let's say that there's a camera pan involved in it how do you know and this is probably a stupid question but i'm gonna ask it anyways how do you know that like let's say that 89 frames that you've budgeted towards that shot is not going to make that camera move too fast or too slow um well, there are a couple ways. One is you just sort of know, you time it out, and sometimes we would act it out, actually. So we'd walk it and see, okay, well, what's that going to be like? Um, and then your cinematographer who's doing the motion control <clears throat> will also know. Um, this is why it's important to have people with experience. But then he might also do, and you know, if you have the time and budget, and, and most bigger films will do this, is you do a pop-through. So <clears throat> you basically animate it on fours or whatever, and you make the moves, but they're really rough. But it gives you enough that you can look at it and say, okay, is that working or is that not working? So uh, when gotcha. you can, you want to do that pop through. It's yeah. almost like a, a previs. <clears throat> yeah, exactly. Before you it's, go through all the work of doing it. Yep. Yeah, it is basically okay. like that. And, <clears throat> excuse me, sorry. And um, this is why, you know, you're really lucky. Now, now, it's different because if you're doing Coraline, that's very different than doing something like Robot Chicken in stop motion, right? Uh, where <laughs> robot Chicken is like, you know, knock it out fast, and you, you want to get as many frames as possible per day. But in Coraline, it's about getting, it was about getting the right frames, right? The right, the exact right look. Um, and so you might get one to two seconds a day wow. uh, of film from an animator. That's crazy. That. So it's a really... Yeah, it's a really slow process. And so just, you know, and this might be a dumb question, but for like Coraline, are they shooting on ones for that movie or? Yeah, they'd be shooting on ones probably for all of Coraline. There may be, you know, I didn't work on that film, so there may have been some shots that were on twos, but my understanding is that would all be been shot on. And then Robot Chicken would be like fours or threes or something. (laughs) (laughs) Well, yeah, I think Robot Chicken, you know, it, it really depends on the action because if you've got some really fast action, you you do want to keep it on one. Oh, you'll, oh, you'll lose the action, right? Yeah, or you'll start losing the action. But but honestly, with Robot Chicken, that's also part of the look, right? And and they'll do things like, you know, somebody's arm will be down and then all of a sudden it's pointed straight right. up in the air and there's no right. in between. Um, and, and But that's kind of what makes it quirky and fun. So so it really works. For yeah, that. awesome. Were any of like the stop motion creatures in movie history like done out other than ones? I'm guessing traditionally shooting on ones is probably how almost everything's done. Yeah, and, I think, you know, if you were looking at Harryhausen and, and some of those, those would probably be, all be shot on ones. And part of that is because they were also matching it to live action plates. Right. Yeah. But, you know, you don't always have to shoot on ones. And so if you're trying to save time, again, if you don't have a lot of motion, you can shoot on twos. We've held shots even longer. Um, and so we, and normally, in, in my case as a producer director, I, I leave that really up to the animator for the most part. Um, because they're going to know what the action, they're going to know what looks best. Um, and so they'll know when to move from ones to twos or threes. For that Cheetos project, did we shoot on twos? No, no. We shot a, a lot of the Cheetos part was shot on uh, ones, actually. And that was, um, oh, okay. yeah, and that, that's online. So people can look at that, I think, right, Timothy? I believe. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it is. And so there were running sequences. 
um, and a lot of action in that one. And so for those, we kept it on ones. There were some shots, I think there were some short scenes in there that were done on twos, but most of that was done on ones, actually. It's insane. Ulrich, they did this two-minute Cheetos film in, wow. like, what, like 10 weeks or something? Wow. I gave you two, actually, eight weeks. Wow. That's, That's crazy. That's insane. Yeah, that was uh, everything. I think Timothy, we did from from story to character design <laughs> to puppet fabrication to oh set design gosh. and set building and filming and post production. Everything all done in eight weeks, which is yeah, it was an insane schedule, but uh, but but it all worked, and and I think it turned out. Well, did you out have to well. work like fourteen hour days to get that done, or were you just working regular ten hour days? Uh, no, it was it was like wow. fourteen hour days yeah, or longer. Honestly, yeah. Jeez. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> we were late at night but uh you know it was a particular yeah it was a great you know it was a great look it was a fun project um and who doesn't want to make a monster movie right i mean (laughs) since you're a kid yeah right oh yeah monsters and dinosaurs and scary woods i can't wait to see uh, it i haven't seen it yet um uh, but you're gonna love it turned out great that actually brings me to my next question um so you mentioned, you know, fabrication and design, um, you know, for this Cheetos project. Is that normal for stop motion animators? Like, are you guys always the ones who are designing and creating the, the creatures as well or the puppets that you're using? Or is that oftentimes a completely different team to actually, you know, design what these things you're moving look like? Yeah, it's you, you do combine a lot of different teams. I mean, we keep it all. It, it, so it wasn't done in house. So we brought a lot of people in, and, and there are people who make the um, basically the bones, the armature. Um, so there are people who specialize in in armature because you need something that's that's going to move and it's not going to sort of fall apart on you. And because you know, if you can imagine, if you're in the middle of a shot and all of a sudden a shoulder breaks loose in this armature, it means you can't move that arm anymore. So you, so that's a specialty on its own, and a really good armature can cost in the thousands of dollars. Wow. Um, wow. to get made. Um, so you've got that and then you've got a character design, but the two, you have to work together on that because the character designer has to understand, well, typically you design the character and then the armature designer comes in and designs the armature to go within the body of the character, unless you're trying to reuse an existing armature and then you kind of design around it. Um, but yeah, you've got to have your character design and you got to figure out, okay, well, is that character going to be able to stand? Because um, there are certain puppets that are, you know, if you think of Babinski in uh, Coraline, right, it's super heavy upper body, little skinny legs. Um, and, and that makes it very difficult. So your character designer, your armature designer have to work on that together. And sometimes your rigor has to work on that. Um, so yeah, you all have to come together as a team. You have to figure out how this stuff is going to work. And, and I know with, uh, when we were working with you, Timothy, you know, one of the hardest things is mouth movements. So you're either going to go replacement face or you've got a fully rigged face to do those mouth movements. But if you're on a budget and, a, and time constraints, um, you might do stick on mouths. Um, or in the case of this Cheetos one, we ended up covering her mouth for most of the film with a scarf, which worked well with the story. Um, but, but part of what was driving that was the fact that we just didn't have enough time. We didn't have enough budget to really uh, to have her mouth be moving the whole time, so we had we decided to hide it, and and that's one of the ways that we often work with uh, folks, uh, and it's similar to what we did with Mermaids on Mars, uh, with Cheetos, with the um, Dignity Health piece that we did, um, is that we'll work backwards. Okay, we'll take a look at what's the budget, and that will drive the design constraints. That will drive what we need to do with design 
with story. Um, and I know when we were working on Cheetos, Timothy, one of the things that I had said is let's let the forest work for us, right? And try to create the suspense mm, and the right. scariness. Um, because if we can do that and light it and just make the environment scary, then part of our work's already done for us. Wow. And then here's another question, and this is kind of half for Timothy, half for you, John. Um, on a project like that where you're doing stop motion for a, for a big client or for on a commercial, how, how much of the time is the client and the agency people there in the studio? Is it like very minimal, just like just to see the setup and then just to check in? Or are they actually there watching you guys work and, and giving comments on your animations? Or is it more like you just send them like, you know, five seconds after a week and then they give you feedback on that? Feedback. <laughs> there's, <laughs> there's no feedback in this process. No. They don't, they don't, they don't, they don't, like, they don't, you guys don't guide them or like say, hey, no, we don't like this well, or I we mean, don't like that if i had them if they spent a week shooting and then we had feedback they'd have to go reshoot everything right there's no fixing what's right. already been done it's like you have to start over but does that happen so, i mean, part I of mean the, does it, is it like oh we don't like the way that the the cheetos moving we might have might have reshot a few pieces here and there for things that people just couldn't live with but for the most part the expectations i set with everybody at the agency and on the client side was like this stuff takes so long we're just it is what it is we're we're going to go through we're going to do all the prep up front to make sure everyone knows what we're doing. Um, and John and his team did a really good job of storyboarding everything out, putting a previs together so we knew how long each shot was, so we could kind of see it before it started animating. And then we got to see all the sets and all the puppets and everything ahead of time. So then really what it was is just seeing finished shots once right. they started shooting. So they approve all the, you know, the pieces yeah, the and then it's like if if yeah. it you don't like the way it looks exactly right, then too bad, basically, right? Yeah, pretty <laughs> much. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There were a few things we changed uh, digitally in post. There were a few little things, but for the most part, um, yeah, it, it was what we shot. And, and, yeah, it, and is that close. typical, John, for the other commercial stuff you worked on? Is that just kind of how it goes? Like they just approve all the elements, and then you just get to it, and then that's it. Or have you actually had to re? you know, shoot things like whole sequences for, for people before? Um, you know, when we did the Dignity Health, we did reshoot a sequence, um, but it wasn't driven by that client, actually. It was driven by, um, we just didn't like the way it looked. Um, it was a camera move, and I didn't particularly like it. And um, But for the most part, it's sort of, you know, if you think of Star Wars, right, you get to blow up the Death Star one time, and then if somebody says, gee, I, I didn't blow up the way I'd hoped, it's like... <laughs> Yeah, we're not rebuilding right, that's, that thing. That's <laughs> so funny. yeah, yeah, but and that's why you know one of the things that with stop motion that you try to do is, um, and it's why it's so important to board the shots, figure out your timing, put together an animatic, and and why previs is so crucial to it is because you don't want to go back and reshoot, and that's one of the strengths of CG, honestly, where it it is a little bit better, and and I would contend that often CG is a crutch of a I hate to say this, but it can be the crutch of a lazy director where they, you know, they say, oh, well, I don't like it. Let's move it here. Right. Because they, they're not willing to commit to those decisions up front because they know they can change it after. Yeah. Um, In hearing Ulrich's question and answering it, I kind of started thinking about how like stop motion animations, a little like tape to tape editing. Right. Mm -hmm. And yeah. then CG is more like nonlinear editing. 
Yeah. Right. That, that's absolutely it. Yeah. So your <laughs> your pre-work on stop motion uh, is super crucial to what you're doing because that's where the decisions are, are made. What are some of the other differences between stop motion and live action filmmaking? Well, I, you know, they're obviously between live action and stop motion, it's, it's time. I mean, you can shoot an entire live action film in three weeks if you want to, whereas, you know, to do a stop motion feature... Uh, you're you're looking at years um, to do it, but you know that's the same as CG, right? I mean, a Pixar film is three three four year cycle kind of a thing, um, and which is very similar to stop motion. Um, they've done a lot now with uh, certainly Leica's done a lot with combining CG um, and stop motion. One of the big limitations that you had with stop motion was sets. Um, because, I mean, if you think about it, if you're going to create a person walking through a village, that set, you know, if it's a sixth scale, so it very often stop motion puppets are fifth or sixth scale. Um, now, they, you have all sorts of different scales that you use, but, but common is about fifth scale, so about the size of a G.I. Joe. Um, now, if you had G.I. Joe walking through a city, you could imagine how huge that set would have to be. Right. Um, <laughs> right. And that's very, very costly. And so a number of folks are, have been combining um, CG set pieces and, uh, and stop motion uh, puppets and doing a really nice job of that. Is part of the reason the puppets are so big is because of lensing? Like you don't want them to seem like miniatures? Well, it's, it's less that. It's more that, you know, if they get so small, it gets really hard to animate them. So, I mean, the so there's the trade-off, right? Is the bigger the puppet, the easier it is to animate it and to get expression in it, and uh, which is great. But that drives your set designers crazy because now all of the set pieces and everything have to be huge. Um, so you will see it, it's interesting. You'll you'll see different scale puppets, or you'll see a piece of a puppet. So there are um, stop motion where if you're doing a close-up of a face, they might have a one-to-one -one scale head, uh, and or a foot or something um, where you're going to be doing a close-up and you really need something bigger so that you can animate it really, really well. How do, do you have to use different lenses when you're shooting these miniatures to make sure that they don't look like miniatures? Um, not really. We typically um, shoot with pretty wide-angle lenses, you know, 25s, 35s, 50s. Um, we don't shoot a lot. You don't use a lot of extended like telephotos, like 85s or or 120s or anything like that um, for the look. But but yeah, they're you're not really the the ones we seem to use most are you know 18, 25, 35s. Okay, that makes sense. Ark, you got anything else? I was just thinking about um, the faces for these stop motion pieces and. Just trying to, under, like, I was just thinking in my head, like, what they look like. Like, are they clay oftentimes, like, for the mouths and stuff? Or are they actually pieces that you move? Like, how do you get the mouths to move um, with stop stop motion? I guess it just depends on, on the piece, right? Yeah, that's a great question, actually. So um, if, if people go online and they look up um, Nightmare Before Christmas, they'll see that Jack Skellington, that he had replaceable heads. So every time his mouth moved, they took off his head and oh put another goodness. head on. Wow, crazy. Yeah. <laughs> um, some are done with clay, so the mouth area might be cut out, and then you replace, put different mouths in with clay. Uh, when we were working on the little Christmas piece, we had fully removable faces, which is the way 
Coraline was done. Hers was actually split so they could replace the upper part of her face and the lower part. So that way they could get eyebrow movement, mouth movement. And then in post, they had to remove all those seam lines. Um, they weren't going to originally, is my understanding, but then it didn't test well. Oh, they so weren't going to remove up. the seam lines. Oh, yeah. Wow. I, w I would love to see what that looks like with the seam. Have you seen um, that Charlie Kaufman movie? The right, stop motion. Uh, and yeah, Anomalisa, they kept all the, the seam right. lines in it. So it's moving around a lot. Yeah, yeah. So it's a different look. It's uh, And with Anomalisa, honestly, the, um, you know, the first five minutes, it's sort of like you really notice it, but then it kind of goes away. Don't really pay attention to it as much. At least I didn't. My wife noticed it through the whole film. She was like, I don't you know, it bothered me. Uh, it didn't bother me. But um, yeah, but yeah, so. Me either. So there's those. There are um, some faces that are have full armature, and they can actually have screws that move the eyes and move the mouth, and you know, in the back of the head, so they can animate it um, through little gear systems. So it might be like a rubber, a silicone-based face, um, and then by moving the screws, the mouth and the eyes and the eyebrows can all move with little paddles inside of them, wow. and those are really super complicated. Um, uh, and, and then, yeah, then removable and then clay. And yeah, so there's a number of different ones, ways to do it. And it depends on how much expression you want um, and and sort of the budget too. No, that's crazy. That's incredible. Yeah, um, yeah I'm, I have more questions about, um, you know, things that you may or may not know about. Like, but I, I just saw Isle of sure. Dogs a couple of weeks ago. Um, uh, I haven't seen it yet. Looks do you know right. much about like how those guys work? Is it is it similar to the classic like way, or are they doing things a little bit differently? Or do you know anything about that? I don't know that much about it. I I know a little bit about Fantastic Mr. Fox, which is what Wes Anderson had done before, um, and I know a couple people who had worked on the film, but I really haven't talked to them much about it. Um, but yeah, it's it was done pretty much the same classic style. I mean, I think they use CG for some of the set extension and some other pieces, but but it's pretty much classic stop motion. I think I've seen the the posable figures, and mm -hmm. I I believe that every piece of it can be changed is posable, and mm -hmm. like even the ears on the the dog's head, the eyes, the mouth open and closing, and then also all the hairs on it can be. All the hairs? Oh my goodness. Yeah. So I think it's each one of those dogs is like an individual, just a whole living, breathing thing that they just, yeah, animate frame by frame with all every movement's done just on that doll. I don't think they're replacing anything. Yeah. It's interesting that you bring up the hair. When, when we were working on the Christmas piece and, and, and when we worked on Mermaids, we had a person who just did hair because if you think about it, if somebody swings their head around and they have long hair, that hair has to move, right? And so you have people who create armatures for the hair, wire armatures, so that the hair can be moved and animated in stop motion. Um, and you have to be able to move almost individual hairs sometimes to be able to get that. So, so I mean, it's it's really crazy. And, Why would and, anybody want to do this? Um, <laughs> it's crazy. It's a lot of work, but it's beautiful. But yeah, it, it, it was beautiful. interesting with Fantastic Mr. Fox. One of the stories I heard is, you know, if you go back and you watch the original King Kong from 1932 that Willis O'Brien did, and you look at Kong, his hair is constantly moving. Right, all it's the just, time, it, which is part of the charm yeah, for me. A, like, I, 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 I right. kind of like that weird look because it's part of that physical thing that we talked about, you know? Absolutely. It's called jitter. And it just, it, it, and so the hair is kind of moving around and, and you can really see it's almost like you're seeing the hands touching the puppet by moving the hair. 
when Wes Anderson did Fantastic Mr. Fox, he loved that look and he really wanted to get that look. The thing is that the technology in terms of the hair and fur and all that, apparently, this is the story as I understand it, had, had come so far that the hair didn't move. And, and he really uh. wanted to move. <laughs> and so people were having to jam, you know, really push on the hair to get that, to get that sort of movement in the hair, um, where it was just sort of a natural byproduct of, of stop motion back in the 30s. But they had, he really wanted that look. And so they had to work very hard to get that hair movement to, to design that jitter in. Yeah. Something that was like hard to avoid in the past is now hard to replicate. Exactly. Yeah, very fun. <laughs> Um, so Timothy, do you have any other questions about this kind of stuff? I, I have some more other qu types of questions. Yeah, I, I, I have a question about John's history in visual effects that I kind of wanted to talk about, but mm -hmm. what do you got, Ulrich? I just want to know, like, what type of stop motion projects you're interested in working on, John? Like, what, what, like, if someone walked into your door today and said, I have a new stop motion project, like, what would that be if you, if you could have the, your, your, like you know your pick. money's not an object right oh yeah well, i mean we'd love to do a, a feature film for for kids i mean for me that's really what it's all about is you know i want to and i'd want to be involved in the story and it, you know to me it, that's really what it's all about is story um and you know when we when we go back and we're talking about the difference between cgi and cell animation and stop motion and all of that um you know as far as kids are concerned, they don't really care that much. I mean, what they care about is the story and are the characters that you can relate to. Um, so that would be the driving thing for me is what is the story? What are the characters? Um, but, but yeah, definitely a film for children. I mean, you know, I still like the idea of doing something uh, around the holidays. Um, and that is primarily driven because, you know, I was a kid of, you know, I was born in 1958. And um, so for me, that Rankin Bass, that uh, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, Year Without Santa Claus, all those things really hold a warm place in my heart. Yeah, awesome. If someone walked into your office and was like, all right, I want to do a stop motion creature for a science fiction movie would you be like okay let's do it or would you be like no no go find someone else no no i'd absolutely do it i think it'd be a lot of fun okay yeah i mean there have been some great ones done you know and yeah it, you know you look at some of the great stuff that harryhausen did it'd be fun to recreate some of that yeah i wrote a movie a million years ago that had a stop motion um you know bad guy or like like final creature moment and i even tried to find somebody to do it uh way back when and uh couldn't couldn't find someone who was who was interested and willing to work with the amount of money I had, which was zero. Um, but <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I would, I don't know. That's still something I want to do one day. So I sh I should definitely should talk to you about it because um, it would be a lot of fun. But I but I don't have yeah, any I don't yeah. have anything. I could have to design the thing. I'd have to you know start from zero basically to get it done. Um, but yeah, one day, one day. I think it would have been fun to do that, you know, that guardian robot in the spirit machine. It would have been fun to do oh, that. Oh yeah, totally. Mm -hmm. yeah. And I also, before I went full CG with that film, I was also thinking about doing the spirit as kind of like a part puppet thing. I, I think it's in the original Poltergeist. There's that kind of like big spirit. I think they shot it underwater. 
right and then like, composited it in i kind of wanted something like that yeah well and that's the way they did the ghosts in raiders of the lost ark as well oh yeah, yeah. That's yeah. Cool. i love that stuff love the wow. way it looks so maybe one day yeah awesome um and then the other question i had was are you working on any passion projects right now john that you have set up in a corner of your studio that are you just you're just chuck chuck like you know click working away at every day or no we don't currently have anything going on we're really focused sort of on the educational side of what we're doing right now um so and we're kind of waiting and just sort of seeing it's you know the stop motion thing is as great as it is it's it's a tough sell um because people people don't understand it and they don't know where it's good. I, you know, one of the things that's interesting, so there was a gentleman in uh, Europe who had filmed a potato chip ad and he had the potato chips jumping out of a bag and dancing around. Um, and, and that's something he was able to shoot in a day. But if you were to go to CG to do that, you'd have to <laughs> model right? all the chips. You have to model yeah. all the chips and you got to texture map them and you got to light it and the bag <laughs> has to move. And so, right. you know, there are definitely reasons to use stop motion and it can actually be less expensive and faster than cg but people just automatically make that leap that's interesting yeah i think in speaking from somebody who on the agency side of things and kind of hearing how creatives talk about these kind of techniques i think they would probably think of cg versus stop motion as a style and a texture rather than um yeah, rather than the production approach to it, because mm-hmm. they would be like, "Oh, CG's going to look cleaner, or it's going to look, you know, stop motion's going to probably have more of a handmade feel," yep. which may not necessarily be true in the case of like chips flying out of a bag. Well, exactly. You know, there's a lot of stop motion being done nowadays that uses real objects, and and certainly you see this. You know, if you go on Instagram or, or Twitter and you see some of these things. And Home Depot has done some of this where the tools move around and then they form a shape kind of a thing. Those are done in stop motion. They can be done very, very quickly. You know, trying to do that in CG, would again, it would take weeks. So there are definitely right. reasons to use stop motion as opposed to CG for budget constraint. Yeah. Ulrich, do you have any other questions? Uh, no, I just, uh, yeah, I'm just thinking about my monster movie now and how I want to talk to John about how we could do it. <laughs> There's somebody that posted on the Indie Filmmakers group that's doing a stop motion creature. Oh, nice. oh yeah. It looks really cool. Looks so really awesome. Cool. Yeah. We should send you the link to the behind the scenes, John. It was this really awesome looking like uh demon puppet that they made. Like that. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that was very, like, yeah. I don't know. It reminded me of that movie, The Gate. Oh, oh yeah. Okay, yeah, 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 yeah. It's fun. Yeah, there's still a lot of people out there doing stop motion. Again, it's a, it's approachable. You you don't need a huge studio to do it. I mean, we did to do the Cheetos piece, obviously, because we had so many sets going at once. But <laughs> right. in um, order to get something done in eight weeks, you need a lot of people <laughs> to jump on it. Yeah, but but you know, it is something that um, if people are passionate about, they can. You know, my son, uh, one of my sons, when he was ten, he was shooting stop motion, as I mentioned earlier, with an iPhone and some Legos. And it was just super easy to get into. We set it up in 20 minutes and off he went. And I know one of the animators um, who was on Nightmare and uh, later went over to Pixar. And he basically has his own stop motion studio in his garage, Timothy Hiddle. And he does some amazing things. Um, and he does any does everything himself. Yeah, or does he, he does bring everything himself. Oh, well, cool. typically he does everything himself. You know, he's yeah. working with um, another friend of mine, Cat Alley Ocean, on a documentary about Spike and Mike um, oh, yeah. uh-huh. called Animation Outlaws, which is going to be a great film. 
but in that case, um, he's working with puppet designers, and there was a lighter and so set builders, and so there's crew working around that one, um, but in his little studio, and and it's great. Yeah, it does terrific stuff. That's really cool. Yeah, uh, Don Bees was telling us that on the original Star Wars movies, you know, the team of people doing that stop motion was only like ten. For like, mm-hmm. let's say the the Walker scene in Empire Strikes Back was like ten people doing that whole thing. Yeah, yeah. That's amazing. Yeah, yeah. It wasn't a lot of people. I mean, Dennis Muren was on it, I think, doing doing the camera work, and then you had Phil and John Berg and and folks doing the animation. And yeah, yeah, pretty small crew. Is it even fun to shoot this stuff, or is it more fun just to see the finished product? I think it's fun to shoot. I, you know, being a director, producer, and not an actual animator, you know, even though I've done it a tiny bit just on my own, just for fun. it is a, it's a long process. So, um, you know, Ulrich, you had uh, asked before whether the agency stood around the studio. I think most agencies who have come in, um, they don't stay long because it's just... Right. <laughs> it's like watching paint dry. Right. It's, it's kind of like that. It's, it's, you know, it's take a shot and then move things just a little tiny bit and then look at it and frame the shot and check the onion skin and then, you know, 10 minutes later, okay, shoot another frame. And um, So it's not a fast-moving kind of thing. And, and that's why a lot of people, you know, it's hard to watch the process but then when you see the final footage when you see that footage coming out that that's amazing because you, you look at this static object this doll basically this puppet and then you see it come to life and it's really incredible what animators can do with it yeah that's awesome uh you might have already done this but just again can you describe what checking the onion skin skin means and like what that refers to yeah absolutely so um you know, back when they had, uh, the, when they were fi- doing it on film, there was really no way to check your shot and did it line up. And, um, you know, there there were some workarounds and they started bringing in video cameras and doing some things to do that. But now with the advent of DSLRs, and uh, there are a couple programs that do this, but the biggest one being used is called Dragon Frame uh, by Jamie Clary. And... Um, Dragon Frame allows you to shoot on a DSLR, capture the frame onto a computer, and Onion Skin is basically, it's what animators used to do, sell um, animators, so they drop a piece of, and you've probably seen this if you've looked at making of Disney movies back in the 80s, is they'll drop a piece of Onion Skin down and they can see, okay, well, here's where I need to move the character, right? So they can see what the last frame looked like, the next frame looks like, um, and so they get a sense of, okay, I'm going to move it this much. And now with the DSLRs, you can do that on a computer. So I can take a look and see the last frame that I shot. And then I can look live in the camera and see the frame I'm shooting. Um, And I can even go two frames back so that I can make sure the motion works, right? So that it's not all of a sudden the arm doesn't move forward too much in one frame. So I can go back, I can play it back and forth and make sure that my motion is smooth so that I know when I I shoot this next shot that it's going to be right. And as a director, like, are you the one sitting behind the computer, um, checking the onion skin and, and actually hitting, you know, the, the shoot button on the computer? Or is that your animator and you're just watching a monitor communicating to that person? 
Uh, yeah, communication. Yeah, it's it's so it is the animator. The animators uh, typically are shooting the shot. Um, sometimes you'll have a cinematographer with them, especially if there's a motion control move that's happening. Um, the animator will do it because they'll know when they're done animating, so they'll usually hit the button to make the shot. And then the motion control rig is tied, especially if you're using Dragon Frame. The motion control rig is tied into that computer, so when that animator hits it, the camera moves to the next position. Then they know to animate, and then once they hit it to take the shot, the camera will move to the next position, right? So they're constantly doing that. Um, my role is more um, looking at the final shots, figuring out how they're going to cut together. Um, I will be there to look at the setup before we kick off an animator. So I would be there to say, okay, this looks good. What's what's the action like? There's always a discussion back and forth with the animator about, you know, sort of my vision, what I think it should do, and then they may push back. You know, if they think, well, that's not going to look right, or, or the cinematographer may push back as well. Um, and so there's usually discussion on the setup, and then I kick it off, and then I leave, and I go, I come back for the next shot to approve it, or in some cases, uh, rare, but... But we, we do this on every shoot. There's things that we end up reshooting because it just doesn't look right. Um, so you're not actually there frame by frame each second as it goes. You you set up the shot and then you leave and you then you watch it when it's done or? That's typically the case, yeah. Wow, interesting. Yeah. So how, and, and, and that's for one whole shot that could be like however many frames, right? Like if it's you know, there's like a shot of someone lifting their hand. So like, you know, okay, we're going to get to lift the hand shot now. You, They go do that, you come back, and then like once that one shot's done, you review it, and then you move on to the next one and set up the next shot? Yeah, that's that's pretty typical. I mean, I might be called in in the middle if they feel that there's an issue. Um, if like halfway through the hand movement, there's a discussion on like, oh, is it, should it move this way or move that way? And then... Right. Okay. Right. Or something's happened on set, and and you know now what do we want to do, and what's the course correction we might need to do? Um, I'll be brought in, but typically on a bigger one. Um, and I, you know, I'm trying to remember on Cheetos, Timothy, if we had three or four sets. I think we had four sets at one point going yeah, on. Yeah, I think so. So typically, I would go look at one set, I'd kick that person off, and then I'd go to another set. And then I, you know, we'd go through the setup and we'd kick that off, and then I would go to another one, and and so it's this constant thing where okay, now footage is coming from from one setup, and I got to review that, and then I got to kick somebody off. So so you're you're running around quite a bit, and that is you know that's one of the other huge things um, about stop motion that I love about it, as opposed to CG, is that when you're doing CG, usually it's in a lot of individuals sitting in cubicles. And, and they're moving things around. When you're doing stop motion, there's a set and it's live. And, you know, I mean, there's cinematographers, there's animators, there's, so you're working with a lot of people. It's n there's no typically, except in the post side of things, no people are sitting in cubicles just kind of doing their own thing and then somebody's pulling it all together. Um, so it is, in, in that aspect, Timothy, it is a little bit like working on a live film. Um, in that you've got lighters and you've got, you know, the crew and, and everybody's coming together. Wow. Right. But it and then, happens very slow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. Like slow motion <laughs> filmmaking. Well, when you're talking about the yeah. four sets, are they all in the same studio or are you going to different studios? Like how many sets can you sure. have in one studio? Well, it depends on the size of the studio. When like, Harry Selleck, uh, you know, when they were making Coraline and and some of the other stop motion features in Leica, they have 
they could have 30, 40 sets going on. Um, there's um, some studios down in LA, well, uh, Robot Chicken Stupid Buddy Studio. Um, uh, I don't even know how many sets they have going on at one time, but uh, I would guess 50 um, going on all at one time and people shooting different things, and they have two or three different shows going on. So they have a lot of sets going on. Um, Tumble Leaf um, was another one where they had probably 30 sets going on at the same time to create Tumble Leaf. Um, so we had four for Cheetos, I think, um, and that was in this studio. When we were shooting Mermaids, we did take a second building. Um, we still only had four or five sets, but we also had to do what there was a lot of production work being done for Mermaids on Mars. So we did take a second building nearby. Wow, that's awesome. Man, sounds really cool. It's a completely different world than what I've worked in, but I, I love hearing about it. It's really fascinating. Uh, we had a, such a good time making that Cheetahs movie with these guys. It yeah, was just, it was just uh, yeah, such an interesting process, and in it, it, that there is such a magic to seeing these things come to life, like John was saying. Because like, you are looking at them in the real world, and they're just a doll, and then all of a sudden they're like moving on the screen. Yeah, I think that's, you know, you had asked um, previously about what are some things that people may not know uh, about stop motion. One of them is that because you're working on so many sets, you'll often have multiples of the same puppet. And and I know that we did that on Cheetos, too. We had uh, two and a half, um, the, the character was called Cat, and we had two and a half cats. Um, one for different sets, and then a half cat, which was just her upper body for close-ups. Um, because you have so many things going on at once, um, plus you've got to worry about breakage, so you'll make multiples of the same puppet. And somebody told me, uh, I thought they had 30 core lines, something like that. Oh, you, wow. Yeah, you've, yeah. you've got to have wow. so many. Um, I guess you don't think about that's that. That's crazy. Right. Um, well, I actually have to get going yep. um, pretty soon. So, Ed, Timothy, do you have any final questions before we get into our last five? No, let's go into the final five. Actually, if you just a answer one question and it just needs to be a few sentences, I just want to know, did you ever work for ILM or like what was your visual effects background? Oh, it's a great question. No, I didn't. No, most of the visual effects we did here uh, were compositing effects and green screen. We worked on a couple independent films. I know a lot of people at ILM, and I was a professional model maker for a short time, but, though that was mostly industrial. Um, but yeah, I knew I know a lot of folks who, who worked over there. But yeah, okay, my, cool. my background is primarily in in actually in CG effects. Um, That's funny. Composite. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. All right. Well, let's do these uh, final five questions. These are questions we've asked every filmmaker that have, that has come on the show. And so it's just fun to like compare and contrast how everyone answers these. The idea is that you answer it kind of the first thing that comes to your head and then, you know, one or two sentences, uh, a paragraph at most. Okay. okay. So the first one is David Fincher says you're doing pretty good if you can get 70% of what you want from your film. Do you agree? If so, what percentage are you getting from your films right now? That's a great question. Um, yeah, I would, yeah, I, I would tend to agree. And, and that's because you're working with so many other people and, and things just, you know, life isn't perfect. So yeah, if you can get 70%, that's good. And, Stop motion is a much more controlled. I have to say we're probably 85, 90%, but that's because it's so tightly controlled in how it's made. Um, what's the thing you struggle with the most as a filmmaker? 
<laughs> funding <laughs> money <laughs> it's always money you're, you're always up you know especially nowadays uh you know budgets have gotten tighter because everybody wants to go to the internet and so um there is this correlation or this perception that hey if it's going on the internet it needs to be it needs to cost less to create um so budgets have become uh, even tighter than they ever have been so yeah i'd have to say that if you could travel back in time and give your younger self one piece of advice, what would it be? Um, go into this earlier. The 80s and 90s really were the heyday of special effects, and, and certainly in the 80s was stop motion. Um, and, and I would like to have gotten into it earlier and done more with it. Uh, do you have a goal as a filmmaker? Uh, yeah, at some point I'd like to, to work on a feature film. Um, you know, we, we really haven't done a feature here. Um, you know, we worked on one, but it never got made, but yeah, I'd like to be involved in a full length feature and see it to see it to fruition. And the last, you know, it, go ahead. Sorry, I'm going to go no, back please. if you don't mind. And maybe Not I don't know if you can edit this in. You'd asked what, um, what advice would I give to my younger self? And, and you know, honestly, it, it wasn't that I wasn't getting involved in it as I was afraid to move forward and, and that being afraid not to do something that that is the advice that i would give is don't be afraid make the contacts make the phone calls the worst that people are going to say is no and if you don't make those calls it's a no anyway really um and and so it is be brave enough to move forward and and chase your passion and just to follow up to that was that fear of rejection or a fear of failure Fear of rejection, I think, in my case, you know, you'd ask if I had worked at ILM, and one of the reasons I never even applied at ILM, um, and e even though I was one of the top uh, industrial designers in my class, um, but it was because of, there was a fear of rejection, of, of being told, no, you're not good enough to do this. Um, you know, and even if you're told that, you just, you, you keep going, right? You just, you ask the next person, and, and you keep honing your craft, you get better at it. Um, but, you know, somebody, yeah, somebody might have told me no if I had applied at ILM. But by not applying, it was a no anyway, right? <laughs> you gave yourself the no. Yeah, exactly. that's, that's yeah. a really good piece of advice. I think sometimes, um, and I've, I'm guilty of this too, like you disqualify oh, yeah. yourself before you even um, try, you know. Yep. Um, like I never applied for fancy film school, you know, and I probably should have at least applied, you know, just to see if I could get in, you know. Yeah. Um, but yeah, you know, the worst that can happen. I'm, and, yeah. and that's how I got involved with more of the effects people later in life too, is I just call them and just say, Hey, here's who I am. And I'd love to get to buy you lunch. And I'd just like to chat with you. And, and yeah, a couple people said no. And, but honestly, most of them said yes. Yeah. That's awesome. You know, I feel like people just need to, ask, you know, there's nothing wrong with asking, you know, nothing right. wrong with approaching and, yep. uh, you know, the worst thing that you're going to get is a no, but right. you know, the, you know, who knows what, what the other answers could be, you know? Absolutely. Um, all right. Well, I last think we're going to wrap this. Oh, we forgot. There's one more. Uh, last question. Five. <laughs> this is final five. <laughs> is making movies hard? Yeah, it's definitely, it's very hard. Um, you know, you and I, Timothy had talked about it before. And if, um, you know, one of the things that people say is if, if people were looking at it logically, nobody would go into this business. Um, but people don't get into this because it's logical. They get into it because they're passionate about it. Yeah. Um, but it's a difficult road. And, 
you know, I've, I've talked to a lot of kids and I, and I told them, keep your day job. Um, because the, <laughs> you know, it, it's difficult and, and most people mm -hmm. don't make it. Um, and, and I know plenty of professionals who can go a few years between jobs. Um, so, so really it is important to, to keep following it and chasing it and, and keep that passion alive. But, but have a have a failover plan. Yeah, you know that's always good to to be to be prepared. You know, definitely. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. All right, well, John, thank you so much for being on the show, man. This has been a lot of fun. Well, thank you. It's been my pleasure. Yeah, the very different type of conversation than what we normally have. We know we talk about live action and all that stuff, but this is. I think people are going to really dig this episode a lot. I hope so. Yeah. Thanks everyone for listening. Uh, oh yeah, John, where can we find more about you? Is there Athena Studios? Is there a Twitter page, Facebook? Yeah, we're on uh, we're on Twitter, but I think the easiest thing to do is just go to our website, athenastudios.com. That's A-T-H-E-N-A, -E like the Greek goddess. Awesome. Cool. And uh, yeah, we'll put put links to all the projects that we talked about, um, all John's work, and then, you know, some of the other um, stop motion pieces that, that you mentioned. Like, I'd love to, to see that potato chip thing and some of the, the other stop motion pieces that we referenced, because I think, I don't know, I don't know how many people are watching all those things, you know, especially of the younger generation. So I think it's good to just get that stuff out there so people can check it out, you know. Yeah, there's some great making of videos online, so... Oh, yeah. Awesome. All right. Well, uh, thanks, everyone, for listening. If you want to get in contact with us, you can send us an email to podcast at making movies is hard to podcast at making movies is hard dot com. Or you can find us on Twitter and Facebook at MMIH podcast. You can also visit our website at making movies is hard dot com where you can find the links to the things we talked about on this episode. And while you're there, sign up to receive a weekly email from us. This will get you all the show notes into your inbox every Monday morning, bright and early. Um, and that way you don't have to like, you know, search around for links to videos and all that stuff. Um, and also, you know, you should guys get all check out the, in the indie filmmaker community group on Facebook. John, I don't know if you're on that yet, but, uh, if you are on Facebook, you should check it out. It's a great place for discussion and, you know, filmmakers are asking other filmmakers questions, um, trying to figure things out. There's discussion of movies and all kinds of fun stuff. So everyone go check that out if you haven't yet. Um, and finally, if you like the show, tell your friends about it or leave a rating for the podcast on iTunes or Stitcher. And yeah, thanks again, John, for being on the show. And thanks, Timothy, for another great episode. Thank you. Thanks both. That was awesome. Thank you very much. All right. We'll talk to you guys next week.